Hello and welcome to the How Might We Sessions podcast. I am your host, Patrick Scally, as always. Now, on today's episode, I have Mac Van Dam. Mac is a designer, architect, and inventor. Inspired by life, his work seeks to connect us to the beauty of living things, material things, and things that change with time. Mac works at a range of scales, from sculpture to set design to private homes. Mac is the founder of Vertical Grounds Design Lab. This is a design agency focused on contemporary, highly ecological forms of urban green infrastructure. The company is currently formed around the release of its first product, the Living Lattice, an innovative vertical garden system which creates a more biodiverse and resilient system versus conventional vertical garden methods. This first product is an evolution in the concept of green walls, which utilizes cork as a source input. I was lucky enough to meet Mac as part of a innovation challenge, which has been set up by Shift. I'll actually have the head honcho over at Shift, Francesca Coloca, on the podcast in a couple of weeks. And he was one of the, the great companies that pitched to be a part of this program. And we continued our conversation as I think his work is extremely interesting. And it's something which I, um, I guess I've had a, a partial interface with over the years from, from very many different projects, uh, academic as, as well as in industry. And I really wanted to explore this topic of vertical um, green infrastructure um, with him and, and the context of that in relation to how we make cities more pleasant to be in, more ecologically friendly and um, solve the climate crisis on a, on a micro level. We are in a time here in the UK, especially in London, where we've seen um, some dramatic flooding really impacting people up and down the country, especially in cities like London and only an earshot from here in Fish Island. So the climate crisis, of, the climate crisis is, of course, uh, the biggest problem of our age. And on a micro level, perhaps it's sometimes hard to understand how we can all affect change or how we can make change in different ways than perhaps the normal ways that are expressed to us. Um, come through the news media or whatever it might be. So I'm really excited to, to tackle this subject matter with Mac. This is the How Might We Sessions with Mac Van Dam. Hey Mac, thanks for coming on the podcast, dude. Hey. Chill. Um, so we met... Hmm. I think of the, the late last year around an innovation challenge that you put in a, a bid for, mm -hmm. and I'm extremely interested in in your world. It's it's a part of uh, you know, the green economy. I would say maybe that I'm uh, very uh, light on knowledge of. So I'm always interested to speak to people with great uh, domain specific knowledge, and you're doing incredible things in this space. But for anyone who who doesn't know you and your work, give us a little bit of a background on on who Mac is and um, I guess how do we get to where we are now with Vertical Grounds, your company? Sure. Um, 
So I'm Mac. Uh, I'm a, I have a background in architecture. Um, I'm broadly a designer, so I, I don't really design buildings very much anymore. Um, lately, I've been uh, building a, a company and a kind of design practice around urban ecologies and thinking about contemporary forms of urban ecologies mm -hmm. um, and, and what it means to build kind of anthropogenic ecologies, um, synthetic ecologies for the city. Um, I have a practice that's based in East London. I'm working kind of on a variety of things right now, uh, doing sculptures and like large scale installations, kinetic design. Um, with a great friend of mine, Parker, we kind of work with musicians and um, finishing up something right now for the Munich Biennale, um, working with kind of sound artists and um, dancers. And, cool. Um, but I also kind of have this stream and that's really a kind of driving passion of mine, which is to uh, work directly with kind of ecologies and ecology making and um, somehow try and kind of connect our built environment to... Um, kind of a, a kind of sustainable and um, kind of thoughtful ecology making, mm. something that our urban environments are really, you know, lacking and, and I think a lot of people feel. Mm. Can you sort of, post-rationalizing back to your younger years, can you see a thread to where that desire to connect those two worlds started? Or is it something that's... Yeah, I mean... Um, it's a funny thing. Like it's, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. Like, so I come from a kind of a family, especially the kind of, um, of immigrants to Canada. Right. And, um, the Dutch side of my family is kind of as far back as you know, are they're gardeners. Um, yeah. Kind of Tulip Dutch, mania. Gardeners and <laughs> Dutch farmers and gardeners. So yeah, my grandfather was a, a gardener. Um, um, and even my dad was a kind of landscape architect. Um, uh, we all kind of, worked for the grounds maintenance crew uh, at the University of Toronto laying bricks. And so it's kind of gardening, working with ecology um, has always been kind of part of my life growing up. And I thought I was doing something different, kind of <laughs> becoming an architect. Um, so when I kind of post-rationalize and reflect, I wonder if that's, that is how I got there. I kind of always had this interest and um, as I kind of moved to cities, moved away from you know, I, I, I didn't grow up in a kind of dense city, right. but I, since I was 18, kind of have been living in them. And um, I think like a lot of people who spend a lot of time in cities kind of have this yearning for uh, kind of amazing, like the natural environments and um, kind of fresh air and uh, bird sounds that come along with them. So, yeah. Um, it's always been a kind of mission of mine, and it's actually what brought me to to London is to kind of explore this. And when you look at London from from that outside perspective, do you was there something in it that uniquely attracted you? Say compared to Toronto in, in that respect, like when you experience it as a as a resident, but then also as someone with a, as you say, a deep passion to to make some change in it. Um, what do you see? What do you see and feel when you when you think about London now that you've been here for, you say like six years or so? Is it? Yeah, like yeah. Uh, London is an awesome place. So, 
I came here to study originally. So I came here to do uh, my master's degree in architecture um, like five, five years ago, six years ago. Um, and I was, I came here because, well, first off, um, there's a kind of cutting edge leading program um, called the Bio-Integrated Design Lab at UCL's um, Bartlett School of Architecture that um, kind of is really at the forefront of, of um, asking these questions. What, what is a kind of healthy urban environment look like? How do we um, make our cities more alive and kind of consider them as ecologies and that mm. that's an important thing? So I came here for, for that reason. Um, but also, um, because the first time I came here, I got off the train at kind of the Blackfriars and saw the kind of skyline is just completely blown away by the kind of desire to experiment in the urbanism of the city. You just see so many different types of buildings. And it, I remember that moment, it like completely shocked me. And I thought like, what an amazing kind of place to be. I have to come here. That's so cool. <laughs> I guess I, yeah, I'm trying to remember my wonderment because I would have been a, a small child and, and probably of the, of the land, it maybe felt slightly different, but I do, I, I'm sure I can echo some of that sentiment. When I was a, when I was a kid, I think, yeah, I mean, I, as you say, I grew up in a, in a rural place as well. And I think that contrast, but it is interesting. The more you travel the world and see cities in their different formations, you, you realize there's no, there's no one way it's done, right? Even though they have all the hallmarks of a traditional city. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly Blackfriars Central London is a real unique set of different design um, movements yeah. sort of experienced in a yeah. kinetic way, as you say. Um, and it's great to hear that, as you say, that the, 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 the program at UCL and, and you say you've got continued work with UCL and you keep strong ties with them here, which yeah. is great. Um, they're an amazing uh, academic institution. Um, how have you, post UCL, as I say, you're still working with them. How have you found the experience now of, of completing that program, now going back and working with them? What do you, what do you find tra attractive about working with academia in that way now um so so now that i've left I, I have my own kind of design practice um and uh i'm supported by their um, innovation program so they have a, um, a really great space called the ucl hatchery um and um, i work with them to well actually they they just support me in building this practice because i have a an impact um driven kind of um company um yeah and so that's how we work together now um i'm doing a project with them and, and that's just solely because um our interests are aligned uh, they they want to kind of bring biodiversity and, and life into their campus. And um, uh, that's what I'm working on. So beautiful. Every podcast, we, we focus the, the dialogue around a, a how might we problem statement, one which is connected to the guest's specialism. And today we're going to roll with the how might we of how might we rewild through living architecture to foster more sustainable cities. I mean, when, when we think about 
urban rewilding. It's 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 a sort of area where I think in terms of that restoration of of natural processes, perhaps, or maybe maybe it's a bit naive to think it's sort of stemming the tide of development in its current form. I mean, you're working on something which tries to work with developments, um, retrofit or new, to make them more um, environmentally sustainable. Um, but there, of course, are quite limiting uh, factors to that, whether it's cost or scale and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're a person on the ground trying to move this movement forward, what what are the things which are maybe holding you back in your kind of current situation in terms of how you're helping to try to rewild and make cities more sustainable? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the construction industry is a, a pretty... Uh, tricky industry and a pretty large one Mm -hmm. Um, and it's very dependent on kind of a few key materials and most of our buildings are made out of concrete steel and glass which aren't really kind of nurturing um, in any ways Um, so a large part of the rewilding movement is really like um, involved in material innovation and um, um, so that's a huge part of this Um, we need a kind of our materials and our processes and like um, uh, using kind of innovative and biomaterials, living materials to be able to um, scale um, in order for uh, our cities to to really change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really a technology issue and um, why kind of we need to foster innovation in this space. Um, kind of at, at a core technology, mm. right? And th- but there's also kind of a, a mindset um, behind it that um, I think will follow um, once we are able to, to develop these technologies. Right. Do you feel supported? But when we think about who it affects, I mean, this um, the issue of, as you say, the, the core inputs into making a building, which are, um, as they always have been, um, and perhaps some forcing by government or, or other bodies to try to make construction be more ethical, more sustainable, mm-hmm. environmentally friendly, mm-hmm. um, energy efficient, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see all this activity, you probably hear all the slogans, it all sounds good. Do you feel like that momentum's actually translating into material benefit for, for folks like yourself and, and, and the, um, you know, your contemporaries in this space? Or do you kind of feel like there's a little bit of lip service and it's a bit, <laughs> where, where do you sit in that as you see it? Am I optimistic that people are actually interested in change? Is yeah. that what you're asking me? Perhaps, yeah. Um, and are the, is that backed up by anything material that you think is um, optimal? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to know. Um, I think I think that there is change coming. Um in the way that we build buildings, I, I, at least I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot, a lot of people kind of working in this space and around kind of building policies out for um, for for biodiversity in cities, for example. Like there, there's a kind of a lot of policies coming into play. Biodiversity net gain, urban greening factors, one that exists now, mm-hmm. um, that kind of at least reflect the intentions of kind of a lot of people that are responsible for making London and kind of cities around the UK. And this is, this is kind of a global phenomena. Sure. So yeah, I think that there is support, um, 
Is it aligned? Do you think all those stakeholders reasonably well aligned on the mission and, and how we get there? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, th I think um, one of the challenges is kind of defining what it means to be sustainable, especially when you're talking about biodiversity, which is a much kind of stickier subject than uh, trickier subject than, for example, carbon. And that's why people love talking about kind of carbon because you can really start to calculate that and you can get to figures and um, biodiversity is a very tricky one and being ecological is a very tricky one and uh, quantifying and um, the, the benefits of this is in my experience um, very very difficult for people to do so um, um, it is aligned but it's it, no one no one quite knows you know so why they're interested in it i think a lot of people kind of have this yearning inside of them to do this and they know it's good and and probably through case studies they've seen the benefits of um integrating life into our cities more and more and maybe more even felt the kind of pressures and then kind of negative effects of living in cities that lack those qualities yeah, I mean, the heat island effect, all those uh, sort of things. I had um, um, Ella Mars on the podcast last year, and she's a part of the guerrilla gardening movement. Yeah, um, yeah. And a lot of that, I thought, especially if we think about who this issue affects from the component of, or from the vantage point, sorry, of a resident of a city like London, a dense urban area, that notion of urban um, guerrilla gardening is that thing about taking some control back of what was supposed to be public land that's become kind of quasi-private. Yeah. Um, and there's just a sense of bypassing all of the uh, bureaucracy of trying to make some change in your neighborhood and just making kind of radical change, which is safe. Um, but it's about giving people from all walks of life a chance to make their area feel more akin to what they would like it to be mm -hmm. through something like guerrilla gardening. And I wonder if you think about the, the various products that get built homes uh, who occupy said homes when you think about this world of of vertical walls and uh, living walls etc like how do you how do you think about that end user experience of a of, a, of someone purchasing a home in the future with these um, mm. objects on their walls and, and the benefit of that how do you how do you picture that and the effect it would have on their lives and the lives of all occupants of a city yeah i mean um i i think uh the kind of green infrastructure movement is one that like will really demand a lot of different tech technologies to be implemented and um, for this to have like a kind of r profound effect. Mm. Um, um, and, and there's kind of roles of um, different types of green infrastructure um, in different ways. Some, some green infrastructure is more passive and not really meant to be incredibly engaging um it's not maybe requiring or asking for participation from people and i can imagine that there things like guerrilla gardening kind of also speak to this desire for people to want to um have access to nature and and um grow food for example um or just kind of show reflect as well how fed up people are with <laughs> having such kind of neglected urban landscapes that they're taking it into their own hands and putting putting their own time into it. So um, I think there's a place for um, there really needs to be um, a kind of place for kind of passive 
infrastructure that are kind of growing and um, are not requiring kind of involvement of the community and, and of course, kind of technologies and processes um, that um, kind of build up this guerrilla gardening uh, uh, mindset <laughs> and um, language. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I just wonder what they, you know, what do they, what do people hear on the street when they think about if you go all the turtles all the way down from the climate crisis and you go down to say something like guerrilla gardening, which is probably the most uh, sort of primitive, for lack of a better word, like basic way of making change, something on your level kind of sits a little bit higher up that hierarchy, perhaps because you're, as you say, you're working with developers, the built environment. There's a lot more uh, at play regulations, etc. I wonder, uh, I wonder how you feel about how products like that can. Um, you know, deliver inside of that that timeline or that hierarchy because for so many people, I think the climate crisis is an incredibly daunting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we were talking about, you know, you live in Fish Island and we're recording a, a week after it was majorly flooded mm-hmm. um, due to extreme rainfall. Um, these things are all interconnected and these are the moments when you, you, you feel it and you see it mm-hmm. and it becomes uh, tangible to your, to your life and not something on, on a documentary or in a graph. Which is perhaps harder to to get a handle on. So yeah, I just I wonder what you think about in terms of the the when you design the product, like how do you how do you see uh, people kind of experiencing it in the real world? You know, po- post um, research and, and done in the sandbox, so to speak. As, as you look outwards into the future, how you're designing these things to be experience and how that can help people to understand the crisis that we're all in in a different way do you, do you see that as something that you want to express and communicate through the product you you design yeah yeah i mean yeah a large part of kind of the ambition for this work is just um kind of inviting people to see the kind of beauty of the real world a, a kind of a large kind of passion and drive for me is um in, in response to like the digitization of our world, right? And right. Um, all of the kind of resources and time uh, that we're putting into the digital world and um, kind of the screens that sit within our four walls of our bedroom. Mm. Um, and I'm really interested in kind of making things that help people re-engage with the physical um, in, in cities. Yeah, um, yeah. the guerrilla gardening movement is amazing because it's kind of an infrastructure. It's a social infrastructure that puts in place kind of the ability for people to do that. And um, the, the, the work that I'm doing is, it's not a social infrastructure. It's it's, uh, it's an architecture. It's, it's more of a... Um, it's a well it's a componentry it's a it's a physical language that again is kind of an infrastructure to um to to give um access for others to to do this and um um, the the real ambition of this is just to make um technologies that are viable um that it's a really difficult thing to uh green in urban environments uh, there's very kind of limited spaces and you have to be pretty creative in doing it. Um, and again, like anthropogenic ecologies require kind of thinking, like design thinking that's that's 
kind of ready let's uh let's uh fit for 2024 you know that's that's advanced and so um typical kind of gardening practices aren't really viable in the city and so we need to build uh, uh, architectures and and think of form languages that that um can help us kind of bring together um uh, our our really sophisticated urban environment that is so kind of convoluted and complex in its morphology and its surfaces and uh just fighting for space at every inch and but how do we kind of mediate um between between that and a kind of living environment we really need kind of quite flexible and sophisticated and smart um technologies to do that and that um, doesn't really exist today. So that's kind of the ambition of this work is to. to yeah. <laughs> and it's that, it's somewhat of, there's so much, so much in that which resonated with me. And it makes me think, as you talked about technologies for 2024, but it's, it's also like deep time thinking. You're, you're trying to think how do these things positively affect neighborhoods for arguably centuries? And it's that notion you talked about, about beauty. I think that's a really interesting thing when you think about say uh, uh you know the the the, the cladding design the, the lattice on a building and you could one day imagine seeing a, a skyscraper with that whole design theoretically over it and marveling at that uh in terms of beauty in quotes in the same way you might at uh, a michelangelo painting or, or a sunset right but those things only exist probably in a limited way now and then also in, in drawings and things mm. like that but it's interesting to think of it from the context of beauty because mm. so much i think of gardening or rewilding or the climate movement green it's always that thing of i think a lot of it is sort of sits in that uh, the, the optics of it i think sits in a world that perhaps is um maybe the beauty notion is a little outdated perhaps mm. it's probably a little bit atavistic and all this stuff and i think even a uh, you know alan titchmarsh or someone like that you know it's terms like who's a gardener in the uk alan titchmarsh it's like no, like there's loads of others, but it's just like who? And I guess when you think about that from a building, you know, maybe when people think of this technology existing, they see it on a swanky, super expensive, beautiful mm. design, you know, the biggest, best thing ever. When in reality, it's in order for probably for it to really have a meaningful impact, it needs to exist over and over and over again in smaller places, in different places, in different ways in order to fully integrate into society. And that mm. I think is really beautiful as a thought. But it's interesting to think of it through that vantage point, I think, of, of the word beauty. Yeah. It's almost like a campaign that needs to be done to express, like, what's a beautiful building now? If that's what we need to do to solve the climate problem, and this is a great way to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for for the rewilding movement to, to really take off, right, it's aesthetics play a whole, a real big part of this. And, yeah. Um, uh, culture plays a real big part of this, and... Um, Right now, a lot of our standards around beauty and aesthetics hold back the ability for um, uh, kind of right. kind of real ecologies to be made because they kind of you know they, they die out in the winter and they become gray and they become patchy and um, people don't like that. That's so frustrating, though, no? <laughs> yeah, it's it's, um, it's, pa- it's what's wrong with the passage of time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think this is all part of. This is all part of kind of the movement. Is somehow um, um, 
well, there's, I guess maybe there's a, there's an uncomfortable, um, period in which people have to go through in order for it to then just become normalized and not feel uncomfortable for us to have uh, changing ecologies in our landscapes and um, for us to rethink the role of plants, for example, and um, kind of living ecologies is not things that are ornamental, but things that are there uh, because we want them to be because um, yeah, we, yeah, they speak to us in a way. They speak to us because it's it's good for it's good for us. It's good for our children. Um, yeah, yeah, fascinating. <laughs> I wonder when you when you when you think of the drivers of change in this space. You talk about technology being a really important thing. Um, I mean, where we are now technologically in terms of the the, the product you're building and many others, I assume in and around this space, building different things. Where are we on sort of the, the curve, I guess, of this technology being ready to be um, produced at scale, if that's what we want to do? Like, or, or what do you see maybe the in a couple of years' time predicting where we might be and, and what might help you to get to that place? Um, couple things I'm thinking about here. Um, I mean, so so in, I mean, far in the future, um, the way we build is going to be entirely different. The materials that we use are going to be grown. They're not going to be extracted from the environment. Um, we have things like engineered living materials and um, uh, yeah, manufacturing processes that 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 are that are good for the world. Um, that's, that's a future that, um, as long as we can hold on for long enough will exist. We have kind of amazing people doing work in that space. Um, in the near future, I mean, we have still a lot, a lot of opportunity to, um, make great system, like urban environments today. We have, um, just using, um, the technologies available to us, we can, we can still do much better, um, building with wood, um, building with clays, um, does promote kind of a healthier spaces. Um, and why aren't those things happening now? Would you say what's the biggest limiting factors uh, in around that? Um, is that an aesthetic thing? I think, I think, um, it's a, it, it's a it's a money thing. So uh, the reality is that concrete buildings, reinforced concrete buildings, uh, are incredibly fast and easy to to put up. Um, you know, Fish Island changed in a blink of an eye yeah. because um, those processes are so efficient and tuned today. So kind of moving away from that is very difficult for people to do because it's just so profitable. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like legislation and um, policy that is holding back the adoption of like wood um, at scale um, that a lot of people say that we should be pushing to mitigate and so that we can adopt wood at a, at a larger scale. That's um, interesting. But um, do you, do you believe that's a, a good pathway to? Yeah, 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 hmm. yeah, for sure. Um, but in terms of bio integration and, and, um, kind of living architectures and um, 
art practice, um, um, doing living walls. Um, I think, uh, um, really where we're seeing the future is the kind of convergence of, um, uh, really kind of, um, architectures that, that promote passive growth and, um, provide, um, the space uh, and the opportunity for ecologies to find themselves within, but also a kind of an integrated layer where there is a, um, a kind of sensing network and a, a really bespoke kind of um, environmental control system that that is regulating these systems autonomously in real time. And um, I'm optimistic that like us and the, the, the product that we're building can get like very, very sophisticated quite quick in that vision. Um, right. And yeah, that shouldn't be too far off in the future. And I think this is part of a movement that um, is happening. And um, I imagine it's going to, where we really start to have much more sophisticated green infrastructure technologies um, that, that are easy to, easier to deploy at scale. So um yeah, but I mean, before we completely change the kind of material practices of the construction industry, <laughs> which, you know, one day will happen, maybe not in my lifetime. Um, I think that we can get to um, uh, uh, urban green infrastructure technologies that can be uh, deployed at scale. Got you. I actually saw your, your Instagram post, which I'll, I'll read it back to you because I thought just beautifully put. And I love when things like this come to me because I think it sort of elucidates things in a really amazing way but you put, I often hear living walls have been around since the 80s um, how is there room for innovation innovation is slow moving and technology is constantly evolving basketball have been around for 15 years before players realised they could cut a hole in the net to let the ball drop out by itself they previously used a ladder to get the ball out of the net living walls need to move away from the idea that they are high density tropical gardens we need low density highly resilient ecosystems for this tech to be viable at scale. This will look different. Let's work, to, work together to evolve this industry. I love the middle point there about when something's so obvious, like cutting the, the net to let the ball come through. You live in that world for ages and it's like good design, right? The door handle, it's amazing. And it just becomes this sort of anthropomorphic thing. You almost see it like as a extremity until it breaks and you go oh my god this is an incredible piece of design i don't even know how it works but thank god it does yeah and i guess with living walls like to many people it probably seems a little bit far out and a bit obscure but as you say it's kind of a couple of changes or a couple of instances and innovations away from it becoming something as pervasive as the bottom of the basketball hoop net yeah. or the door handle yeah and that's that's what we're hoping for i think we'll see a lot of kind of uh holes cut cutting in the of net, the net. <laughs> and the kind of green infrastructure and in the, in the way that we're able to think about greening our cities because um it is kind of um it's i think it's a new it's a new desire for for people um we haven't had this many people living in cities we haven't um kind of been so climate aware um for very long that um this this really is a kind of new movement, and um, of course, the future that we want is one that our our cities, the the places that most of humanity lives, is 
completely ecologically thriving. And we are certainly smart enough as a species to do that. And I think that we'll look back and kind of, can you imagine looking back and saying, wow, I can't believe our grandparents lived in environments like that where there was no vegetation. Your walls were bare with concrete. Wow, how sad that must have been. Like that, that really is the future that we want is one that's completely flourishing. You can imagine what this does for the kind of increasing heat, uh, for, for the air that we breathe, for our, our ability to absorb floods. Um, and yeah, I think the technologies in this space are really in their infancy. Like, um, yeah, I kind of say like the, you know, the first computers in the 80s, you know, people thought this was, <laughs> had no idea where this would go. And they're incredibly primitive. And it's like that for kind of any sector. And it's beautiful, I think, to couple this idea of something so, um, as you say, sort of clinical, that concrete building, that structure with this new form, as you say, this living architecture that creates a wrapper around it. And the problem that you're solving is the global problem on a micro scale in every location that you can. And I, I think that, especially as we think about the, say, like 15-minute city concepts and, and all that sort of thing, and... Um, as you say, if you think of a vision for a city which fits more inside that model, that you could have living walls alongside sort of, uh, you know, um, vertical gardens or, or gardens on, on roofs and, and lots of other things sort of working together. But I guess, like, can you think to, to you know, steel man the other side of this, like to think what are the, the oppositions for moving this forward? Um, what do you think people's maybe strongest arguments against pursuing this area of of living architecture or rewilding? How do you think we could best maybe answer some of the concerns that people have against this movement? Uh, the million dollar question. <laughs> What's holding back the industry or what are the concerns? I mean... Um, well, say like, I'm just a hypothetical person says, that's cool, Mac, like sounds good. I've got a house or a flat. I'm not interested. Um, and they're not interested because they say, oh, I don't see this as a problem and I'm just here doing my own thing. Like, how do, how do you, can you think from that person's perspective what might be making them? Yeah, I mean, the thing about um, the materiality of our outside environments is like, especially when we're talking about cities and, and green infrastructure, we're very much talking about the kind of exterior um, um uh, uh, environments and it's where we spend actually not that much time nowadays. Yeah, good point. And, yeah, <laughs> um, in the box constantly. <laughs> um, I think you need a kind of longer term view often when it comes to nature, um, and we're often very just caught up in efficiencies and um, it's it's harder to understand the benefits of doing giving space to nature so i mean this is i mean maybe one day in the future there will be yeah just it wouldn't even be considered an option that we wouldn't be proactively building space for life around us um, but today it seems as if it's an optional add-on, um, and um, 
yeah, I think that will change. And um, to, to be fair, like it's it's quite difficult to do it today to, to green our cities. There's a lot of things that we can do and we can do better. Um, but especially when it comes to urban greening, it's it's a, it's a difficult thing, and it's it's um, sometimes hard to see the benefits, um, especially in the kind of ways that it's done today. Yeah, there's not like a one-to-one correlation in your life by installing it on an individual basis in an area, right? You have to be a little bit, as you say, longer time horizon, more holistic in your thinking. Yeah, um, which a, I, there's, there's a. Um, it's kind of this contradiction in living walls, which is really interesting when you think about them as a technology, which is that, um, especially in the way that they're done today, and um, is that they're an additionality. They're inherently like something additional that you're adding. And today I think material is, um, uh, it's such an important resource. It's something that we, we really consider and we feel bad about using because um, it's often comes with kind of awful supply chains and putting carbon out into the atmosphere. So there is something to consider when you're doing this, which is feeling strange about additionalities. And it's something that as a technology, this really needs to confront is um, the, the work that we're doing really embraces this as an additionality. It doesn't try to hide it. Um, and confronts the kind of issues around what would be wrong with an additionality, you know, the, the supply chain, the materiality of it. Um, so yeah, yeah, that I mean, I think it's it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about. In this, is it an additionality? Um, and a lot of people don't like additionalities. I, I actually quite em, quite embrace them. I quite embrace the idea that kind of the newest layer of an urban building is an ecological layer. And just like we have a kind of, uh, we have a thermal layer, we have a, we have a moisture layer, we have a rain barrier. We also have a kind of ecological layer. And this is a, this is a kind of mediation between our, our built world and our natural world. There's a kind of interesting, um, somebody said this to me once where, you know, the role of the city historically has always been to kind of protect us from the natural world and the role of the city like today tomorrow is to connect us with the natural world because we are so disconnected and because we we, we are not so susceptible to the elements and i think that yeah kind of embracing that the, the kind of urban building of tomorrow might have offerings and kind of mediations between the natural world is um where we start to kind of understand uh, green infrastructure as an additionality. That's fascinating. I love I, I love that framing of it being an additionality. I think instinctively that feels more like I think a nice way to a nicer way to approach it. And also just psychologically it's something about you know, the kind of linear accumulative society that we've become pretty entrenched in. Um, even something that isn't that, that's circular and completely rewrites the rules to sort of play in the bounds of what we all know and have become accustomed to, but do it uh, alternatively, as you said. I think there's something in that that I think is really, I don't know, I, just, I could just see that being more palatable for people just by nature of, of what we've become accustomed to. But I wonder, thinking about the, 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 the other components that which are moving this forward, if you think about the kind of political 
space. And I, I do think I do think there's a role here for the government to kind of make a market, so to speak, here, mm-hmm. um, and be a little bit more active in participating in sort of not just fixing a market failure, be it the negative externalities of um, CO2 emission, but actually going, okay, how can we you know, invest in R&D, education, as you say, green infrastructure, and be more on the front foot to galvanize more private investment? Because I think private investment is is there, but I think it needs to be the, the kind of other hand clapping rather than this thing of we're going to do as little fiscally as possible in austerity measures, et cetera, and just assume that you know, hopefully the private market will kind of take that. I think it's certainly for something like this, which is, as you say, so it's it's a it's a it's a human thing, the, the ecology of it, but it's it's full technology. It's as you say, it's really leveraging how can you do these things at scale through technology. And I think there's so much that could be done by the government being more proactive in this space. And I think hopefully we'll get a a new regi- regime change or two here in the United Kingdom soon. And I do think there's an opportunity here to to really get on the front foot. But I wonder for you as a business owner, as someone deep in the academic space, how do you see that relationship as a as a positive or a negative in terms of the government being a bit more active and supporting this field you're in? Do you see that as a as a net positive or or negative? Yeah, I mean, I think people in this industry say it's necessary, entirely right. necessary for property developers to be incentivized to to do this i mean the the buyers of this um i mean i don't know if i entirely agree with that to be honest as well like that it's it's entirely necessary but it's certainly going to help um to to have policy that's um that's incentivizing green greening um also also kind of again defining what that means and doing it well um, and th- I mean that's a huge sector to be developed there there is really a lot that can be done in the space of um, helping measure or right. understand or set maybe definitions of what kind of good ecologies are um we're not just talking about plants and gardens we're talking about ecologies right Right. and that's very different um so it's like go back to your point around carbon like being the easiest in to out whereas biodiversity being a little more a little trickier and and, um yeah so so setting definitions around what an ecology is um is going to help and yeah i think maybe we're never going to be able to do a checkbox thing when it comes to this but uh, i think we can definitely understand what we don't want to be doing yeah sure um, and kind of mitigating against that when it comes to this movement right uh, well all of these moments whether, whether good or bad in terms of change they are an opportunity to to yeah. move the ball up the pitch and I think there's something here especially in this space and as the, as the problem becomes more acute a chance to find a, a political tailwind or two to to buttress this movement and I think um, we, we talk about the housing crisis etc you know and it's all as you say it's pretty linear and inputs to outputs isn't it it's we, we just need to build more homes at x cost and we just follow at infinitum but as you say there's a there's a line in there somewhere there's an intervention where you can go we could we could create a new structure where it could all of a sudden unleash an incredible amount of opportunity and chance to solve 
multiple problems, pretty much the full scale, like ecological, economic, social, and cultural could be solved through what you're, the space you're playing in, mm. if it was rightfully supported. And I think, I think it is about that making a market. I think it's like there's, there's, it needs to, the government needs to take it far enough whereby private investment can then leverage on top of that. And then it's some, it's just a ball rolling downhill. Yeah. And currently it's like Sisyphean. It's like we're pushing it <laughs> up yeah. the hill and then just getting knocked down. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I think there's a back and forth here. So I try to be optimistic in this space. And, yeah. Um, so just start the year, we need optimism. <laughs> I mean, we need optimism. Um, I mean, what you're saying is completely, completely true. Um, I do see, like, I do see work coming from the the kind of government and policy making, and that it it's needs to be stronger. Um, biodiversity net gain is an act that's like, I don't know if you know it, but it's a um, yeah, it's going to be applied to all new buildings in the UK where they have to meet biodiversity quotas, and building on that. Um, is going to be really, really important right. because it is going to incentivize um, people to green. But m more than that, yeah, it's going to incentivize technologies to be developed, and there that really will help. It, when when the technologies get better, of course, the regulations are more comfortable in being imposed. People are quite weary about imposing regulations right now because it's very difficult to do it. So um, it's like green roofs you know so um in the last kind of 10 years or something london went from having i think it was like two hundred thousand square meters of green roof to today like 3.2 million and it's because the wow. technology became viable right um and the policy started to reflect that and then we had some kind of amazing people in this space advocating for it but it, it there was this kind of um synchronicity between the technology and um, the policy. Right. And I think we'll see that kind of at a lot of levels, but of course um, you need to support innovation in this space. Do you think those policies in terms of biodiversity and construction, do you think they've gone far enough in their current form? No, 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 no. Uh, in terms of how far on a scale, zero to a hundred, where do you think it sits in terms of how far it went to try to really get to the, the root of the problem and fix it? <laughs> the root of the construction industry Probably not the deep, root. deep, deep. So, the um, surface layer probably at least. Yeah, I mean, I think um, maybe, maybe the UK globally is um, a leader in... Um, uh, especially out of a lot of larger cities in terms of starting to put together policies. Um, like in North America, I don't think biodiversity net gain type policies exist, although I know people working on them. Right. So um, I think it's, I think the almost the policy is almost as far as the technology. And so... Interesting. Yeah, so... We're one-tenth. We're okay. one-tenth of the way there. That's what I think. One-tenth more than we were, I guess, which is positive. <laughs> Mac, it's been great to, to, to discuss this topic with you and, and, and what you're doing at 
vertical grounds. And I think it's going to be exciting, I think, to see how your technology can hopefully um, take root here specifically in East London. Um, and some hopefully some forward thinking developers as part through these new policies and also some um, hopefully some decentralization and some more regional powers and, uh, and across the country can see more of these uh, applications proliferate uh, and because as you say we the technology is we're on the we're on the, the steep part of the curve but we're the curve is still a long way to go yeah in terms of the adoption we're probably further behind still so i think it's um it's going to be exciting to see how your practice and and and, and your intention your principle follows through that that timeline but before i let you go um every episode i i ask my lightning round questions to my guests to give everyone a chance to uh, understand you from a different angle and also a bit of a further reading maybe i don't know <laughs> so would you be open to answering answering my lightning questions sounds good amazing uh, number one, what are two of the most important books in your life? Yeah, so um, I think the first one is a um, autobiography, um, no biography, about uh, Robert Irwin, an artist. It's called Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. Do you know it? I don't know. Okay, it's an Sounds awesome book. Sounds amazing just to learn from that. <laughs> Seeing it, and it's a, it's a kind of whole life biography of an, an amazing artist, Robert Irwin. Super, super good. Um, and because it's kind of written almost at the end of his career and takes you through um, the development of work as a series of questions. Um, I, when I moved to England, actually, five years ago, I got really into um, reading uh, Timothy Morton, this philosopher, um, and at the time, it was actually really inspiring um, and kind of a breakthrough in my thinking about our relationship to ecology. So uh, his his book, um, Dark Ecology, uh, was, was quite profound for, for me at a, at a time. Perfect. Uh, number two, who was the last musician or what was the last album that truly blew you away? I saw you did some stuff for Fortet on your website. <laughs> He's got a few albums that have blown people away. Yeah. Um, yeah, with my friends, we recently went to a Fortet gig that uh, was very, very fun. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Mind-altering experiences. Um, number three, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I, I mean, um, for me... Botany is something that I want to become like much more versed in. Um, so it's something that um, I'm, I would I would love to be a, a botanist. I, I'm sure I'll never get there fully, but um, yeah, of course. This um, orthogonal to what you're doing now. I can see the transition. I like that. Yeah. Um, number four, what piece of advice has had the most lasting impact on you? Um, yeah, I think... Um, so when I was in undergrad architecture school, I had a really amazing um, tutor named Andrew Levitt, who has passed away actually, but he was an incredible um, teacher. And uh, he taught us design thinking um, um, almost as a, a practice of mindfulness and um, kind of told 
told us and, and taught us that uh, uh, it really had a profound um, impact on me that um, designing uh, is becoming a good designer is really an act of kind of being mindful and, and really a state of being. Um, and as much as it is about learning the skills and tools of like drawing things and doing things, it's really kind of being able to practice a kind of stillness and um, state in yourself. Uh, so we would do design exercises like literally meditating and imagining design scenarios in our world, in our, in our head, uh, kind of falling in and out of sleep, thinking about these projects. And, um, uh, that was really, really powerful for me. Um, and something that kind of, I still practice today is just ensuring that kind of you are at peace and, um, then you can kind of see things clearly. It's, it's, a it's something that is very often forgotten about, um, in the kind of teaching of um, how to be a good designer and, and problem solver in general. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. I feel like we could do a whole episode on that. Yeah. Yeah. He has a, a book as well. Um, Andrew Levitt. Uh, I forget the name of I it. I can put it but, in, the, uh, in the notes. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, what piece of advice would you give to the next generation forming their path? Um, maybe it's make things. Um, yeah. Um, Love that. I think that's a really relevant today. Maybe may, a lot of the, the kind of career paths and uh, ways of working are not going to exist. Um, but we're, for as far as I can see, we'll, we'll be the ones making things or at least it will be useful for us. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Uh, and lastly, aside from resources such as money and staff, what is the single biggest thing your industry needs more of? Um, not sure about this one. It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's like, I don't know. I think that's what we just did the whole podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> the whole <It's> podcast. <laughs> TLDR. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say regulation, but uh, I think it's a cultural. Maybe it's a um, it's a, it's, a, it's an, a, um, an embrace of, of culture. It's a kind of cultural shift. Um, um, it needs to come from from the from the people. I think. Um, yeah, mindset shift. Yeah, beautiful. Max, been a pleasure. Um, for anyone who wants to continue to follow your thinking, find out more about your work, where are the best places to find you online? I know you've been all about out, getting, offline, getting offline and being in the real world, <laughs> but if people are online, where should they head? Yeah, um, yeah. find me on Instagram, Mac Van Dam. Uh, you can, of course, follow me, uh, find me on LinkedIn. Um, got a website, macvandam.com. Uh, and uh, yeah. Perfect. Max, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for having me. Nice to chat. <laughs>